I want to begin this morning by thanking you all for being here. Thanking you all for coming to worship with us this Lord's Day. I know that you don't come because of our lavish facilities. I know that you don't come for our great music program. I know that you don't come here because I'm so good looking. I know that you don't come here because you can get lost in the crowd. And I know you don't come here because you know you're going to get out at noon and be able to get down to uh, the Golden Corral or Denny's or something. I believe that for many years, most of you have been coming here, coming to our church, to Grace Baptist Church, to worship God in simplicity and in humility and honesty and to hear from God's Word. Most of you are used to turning from Scripture to Scripture to Scripture during sermons in this place and I think that perhaps you might even like it. And that's why you like to come. To learn of Him. To grow in His truth. And again, I want to thank you for coming. Thank you for loving His Word and for your dedication to this church over the years. However, with that said, wouldn't it be even better if you were able to sit down with Jesus maybe one-on-one, to learn from Him, to listen to Him, maybe with a couple other of the choice, close disciples of Jesus, a gathering maybe this size even, the intimate few, and to have Jesus actually teach you those special truths that He reserved for His inner circle. I want to do that today. Turn with me in your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 13. We're going to get a private lesson from our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as you uh, turn to Matthew chapter 13, I remind you that we are engaged in a study from God's Word entitled, The Beauty of Wrath. Those things don't seem to go together. But even today in the passage that we will examine, we will begin to see how they do go together. I remind you that we have been studying under the first major heading so far, the reality of wrath is what I've entitled it, to see from history and from the Scriptures the first of all, the common conviction that church after church after church tell people, tell their people that they need to be saved and seldom do they tell them what they need to be saved from. It is the wrath of God. That's what salvation is. It is being saved from the wrath of God. And yet churches don't want to even talk about the wrath of God or judgment. 
But that is the common conviction, even in many churches today. And we saw throughout the Old Testament what we called the chronicle of the concept. Seeing chronicled through the Old Testament that it was taught that there is a judgment of God and the Old Testament saints believe that. We see in the Old Testament that the saints who believed in God believed in the judgment of God, a judgment to come. And we are currently looking at the Christian concept of the wrath of God and focusing so far only on the clear teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ. What does Jesus say about the wrath of God in the New Testament? You know, people just think, in the Old Testament, God was a God of wrath and fire and fury. But now we have Jesus. And somehow Jesus is a God of love and grace and mercy as opposed to the God of the Old Testament who was wrath and fury. You know how heretical that is? God is God. There is one God. He reveals Himself in three persons But there is not a God of the Old Testament and a God of the New Testament. There is one God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Old Testament and New Testament. And so we should find in the New Testament Jesus clearly teaching what we saw in the Old Testament. And we have. As we looked at the first sermon recorded by our Lord Jesus from Matthew chapter 5, that which we commonly call the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus spoke of the fire of hell and how men would be cast into hell. We saw from chapter 7 how He spoke clearly of the fact that there would be judgment and that there would be men who would be judged and told to depart from Me, ye cursed, and that He would send them. He would send them to hell. And that's not easy to think of and it's not fun to mention and we don't often take delight in the fact that men will be cast into hell. But Jesus says that He will do that. I've said this to some of you on many occasions. There is a common teaching and a false teaching in the church at large today that Jesus or God never sends anyone to hell. That you send yourself to hell. That it's your fault and you're going to send yourself to hell. And I always thought, well, if that were me, I'd be standing there going, I ain't going. Well, what do you do then, God? No, the Bible clearly teaches and Jesus said that He is the one who will say, depart from me the most horrid words that one could ever hear. Depart from me into hell. And so then we saw even last Lord's Day from the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 12, the clear doctrine of our Lord regarding justification and judgment as He speaks in uh, chapter 12 and verses 34 and 37, that out of the heart 
brings forth that which will condemn a man. And we saw from the Scriptures that that is a picture of the new heart in a man that brings forth a cleansed life, a pure life, a holy life manifesting itself in pure words and holy words. Or that heart of stone that remains in a man that brings forth a life of wickedness, a life of evil and words that depict what your life is like. And so we implore you to be sure that you are one who has a heart of flesh as Jesus referred to in, in John's Gospel in chapter 4, desiring those who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. It is those who have a heart of flesh and a new spirit within them that will genuinely worship God. Now today, we pick up with this and we understand again that Jesus spoke of judgment and of the wrath of God. And here in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 13, we find our Lord teaching the multitude, speaking in parables. I read to you a few moments ago from verses 34 and 35, suggesting that He spoke to them in parables all the time. That it's what He did. He spoke to them in parables, fulfilling what was spoken through the prophet, that I will open my mouth and parables, and I will utter things hidden since the foundation of the world. So Jesus, in fulfillment of the Scripture, spoke to men in parables. And I want to focus this morning on one of the parables here from Matthew chapter 13. And I again remind you that this is Jesus. This is not Pastor Hildebrandt is somehow inserting this into the Bible just to prove a point. This is the teaching of our Lord. We pick up in verse 24. He presented another parable to them saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares also among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprang up and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. And the slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. And his slaves said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you are gathering up the tares, you may root up the wheat with them, allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in that time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather up the tares and bind them in bundles and burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. And so he gives this what we call commonly the parable of the tares. In this whole chapter of parables, this is one of the longer ones, not the longest one, but one of the longer ones. And we, as I said, call it 
the parable of tares. And he presents a clear, understandable picture for the multitude to understand. He is at this time, according to verse 2, speaking to a great multitude. He's in a boat and he sat down and the multitude were standing on the beach. This is the picture. And to this multitude, he gives this parable along with the other parables, this parable of the tares. And they would have understood. They would have understood the whole concept of farming, unlike today, where we just go to Publix and pull whatever fruit or vegetables or whatever we want off the shelves, throw it in the cart, check out, go home and throw in the refrigerator. They would have understood that you have to plant the seed and the seed has to be watered and has to have sunshine and then it grows up and you got to go out and harvest it. And they understood about this wheat and what wheat was like and also they would have understood what tares were. Do any of you understand what tares are? Well, tares are a weed like a rye grass. And you don't really see the difference between the tare and the wheat until they begin to bear fruit, as we say. Until you see the kernels. And then you can clearly spot the tares from the wheat. Now, when they're grown up, Tares were known to have fungus in their fruit and that fungus could actually be deadly to animals or even to people if they were to eat it. So tares were bad. They were deadly. They were no good. They were undesirable. But rather than possibly harming so much as one of the stalks of wheat, the farmer says, let them grow and in the harvest, pull up the tares first and then the wheat. Gather the tares together and burn them and gather the wheat together and put it into my barn. This is the harvest. And at the harvest, the tares are destroyed and the wheat is gathered into his barn. Now, as I said, the multitude sitting there on the shore as Jesus is sitting in the boat. Isn't that a great picture? Jesus sitting in the boat, teaching the multitudes there on the shore, standing before him likely as he sat, teaching them about the wheat and the tares. They understood all about the farming, about the wheat and about the tares. But what on earth does that have to do with the kingdom of God? Now, you're smiling because you know what it has to do with the kingdom of God. Why do you know what it has to do with the kingdom of God. Because Jesus goes on to tell us. And why does Jesus go on to tell us? Because His disciples ask Him. 
Look at verse 36. Then He left the multitude. He left the multitude and went into the house. And His disciples came to Him saying, Explain to us the parable of the tares in the field. Before we go any further, this is what I was talking about. We're having a private audience with the king. Just a few of us, the disciples, in the house, talking to Jesus. The multitude is gone. We are alone with Jesus. And Jesus begins now to explain how this parable relates to the kingdom of God and to eternity. Let's begin by looking at this and opening it up in verse 37. He answered and he said, The the one who sows the good seed is, who else? The Son of Man. What's the good seed? The good seed is truth. The truth given by, preached by, taught by our Lord Jesus Christ. It is imperative that we teach truth. It is imperative that we teach God's Word. Churches must bring you truth. And yet it seems they would be glad to do anything else but. Anything and everything else we can do, let's do that except maybe preaching truth. But yet this is what Jesus says is the good seed. Same with the parable of the sower. The seed that was sown, the good seed of the Word of God. So Jesus says, The one who sows the seed is the Son of Man. He brings truth. And the field, verse 38, is the world. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom. The sons of the kingdom, the fruit of the good seed, cast on the good soil of the world. This is what Jesus says. Now he says in verse 38 at the end, the tares are the sons of the evil one. Sons of the evil one. So you have two different kinds of growth. Only two. Good growth and evil growth. A picture again of the two roads. The broad road that leads to destruction and the narrow road which leads to glory. There are only two kinds of people in this world. Those of the kingdom of Jesus and those of the kingdom of the evil one. The sons of the evil one. Verse 39, the enemy who sowed them is the devil. That's the evil one. He is the one who has sowed the the bad seed of the tares. He is the one that the tares bow down before and worship. He is the leader of the bad seed, the evil ones. 
This is what Jesus is explaining to us in this private, little, intimate discussion as He tells us regarding the parable of the tares and the wheat. The harvest, He says, is the end of the age. The end of the age is the end of this age prior to the age to come. The end of the age, there will be judgment. This is speaking of the eternal harvest. The harvest at the end of the age when all men will be gathered together before Him and give an account. The, the reapers are the angels. The angels with fire. The angels are the reapers with fire. And so it shall be at the end of the age. This is what Jesus says about this parable. And what I would like for us to do now is to focus in on this last day in the judgment and what Jesus says about this beginning in verse 41. He says, It is a picture. The Son of Man will send forth His angels and they will gather out of His kingdom all the stumbling blocks and all those who commit lawlessness. Those are the followers of the evil one. The followers of the evil one. And what I want to look at now is what He says happens next. And we're going to focus on verse 42. And we're going to take much of our time today to kind of take this verse apart, to open it up, to expound it a little bit, and to understand what Jesus is saying. He gives three points to tell them of the reality of God's judgment, the reality of God's wrath, and quite frankly, the reality of torment. Verse 42, And He will cast them. Who is the them? They are the lawless. Those who follow the evil one. Those who are of that one who sowed the bad seed. The kingdom of the sons of the evil one. They will be cast. They will cast them, and he says, into the furnace of fire. Into the furnace of fire. This, these are the words of our Lord Jesus Christ as He says that those that follow the lawless one will be cast into the furnace of fire. Now, this is not depicting an actual furnace. This is anthropomorphic language. This is language that they could have understood. A really hot, fiery furnace. It is a metaphorical term for something which is beyond our comprehension in terms of fire. Hot. Extremely hot. And it pictures God's wrath. It is the intense, unyielding, unrelenting, intolerable punishment of God upon the seed of the lawless one. Those in the kingdom 
of the sons of the evil one. Those in the kingdom of the devil. I'm going to ask you to please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation in chapter 14. As you turn to Revelation 14, I want to remind you just a little bit about the book of Revelation. You read in the very first chapter of the book of Revelation where it says that this is indeed, according to chapter 1 and verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave Him to show His bondservants the things which must shortly take place. So, the book of Revelation is a revelation of Jesus Christ to us. It shows us more about Christ. And it is Christ revealing it to John. Telling John to make sure that he writes most of this down and gives it to the people, to the churches and to the people, to us. So what we have here is again, or should I say still, the teaching of our Lord in an even more intimate context, to John. Of course, there's angels around and things like that and glory that he sees in the vision. But this is still the revelation of Jesus to you and to me. And look what he says here in chapter 14 of the book of Revelation. He tells us in verse 9, And another angel... A third one followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast... Now, who's that? That's exactly what we were looking at in Matthew chapter 13. The evil one. The devil and his followers. The beast that is his follower, his creature. If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or upon his hand, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire, and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Tormented in fire. Jesus said in Matthew 13 that they would be cast into the fiery furnace. This is a fuller, clearer picture being given again by our Lord to John, to us, that this is a place of the wrath of God, of torment with fire and brimstone. That is a very serious picture. A very hard picture of the final place for those who do not follow the Lamb. Tormented. Tormented with the cup of the wrath of God. And his anger. This is the New Testament, by the way. Tormented by the wrath of God 
and His anger. Can you picture that? Can you picture in your mind's eye for but a moment how horrible that will be for these people? And imagine some of these being your loved ones. And this is why we plead with God for mercy upon their souls while they are yet alive. For once they get here, it's too late. There's no going back. There's no mercy in hell. Turn over a few pages to chapter 19 of Revelation. Revelation 19. Look down to verse 19. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against Him who sat upon the throne and against His army. And the beast was seized and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in His presence by which He deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped His image. People, this is all of those who bow to their king, Satan. All of those who are in the kingdom of darkness as opposed to those who are in the kingdom of light. Remember, there are only two kingdoms. The kingdom of light with King Jesus and the kingdom of darkness with Satan. There are only two ways. The narrow road which leads to glory and the broad road which leads to destruction. There are only two types growing in the field. The tares which are followers of the evil one and the wheat which are followers of King Jesus. And all of those who are of the tares, who follow the one, the evil one, and have the mark of the beast, and who worship him, these will be thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. Thrown into the lake of fire. Burning, tormented, those who are deceived, those who follow the evil one are thrown into the lake of fire. One more text here. Look down just a little bit to Revelation 20 here in this chapter. End of Revelation 20. Verse 14. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That is judgment day. That's the eternal harvest. The time when they are all gathered together before Jesus. And as we saw from Matthew's Gospel prior, He will say to those, who are going into the lake of fire, depart from Me, ye lawless ones, ye accursed, to the lake of fire. That's where they are cast. 
but to His sheep they are gathered together to be with Him in glory. This is the nature of God's wrath. This is Judgment Day. This is the eternal harvest. There's going to be two places. Where will you go? There's only two destinations. And if you are not in the kingdom of the Lamb of God, if you are not a follower of Jesus, the tragic end given in the Scriptures, given by our Lord, is the lake of fire where there is torment. I don't wish to upset you even more, but this is exactly what Jesus talked about and pictured in Luke 16 with Lazarus and the rich man. It's the same as He taught. That when He woke up, the rich man was in hell and he was in agony. And there was no way out. No relief. It is the teaching of our Lord that the end for those who do not follow Him is the lake of fire. Now, before I leave this thought and go on to the next thing that we see in the text back in Matthew, and you could turn back there if you want, Matthew chapter 13. I wanted to address a question. In fact, it's a question. one of the questions that I am most often asked by Christians and by people of God. And they ask in all sincerity and they, they want to know about cremation. Is it right for a Christian to be cremated? Is it right or should a Christian be cremated? Now, let me just mention that it is texts like these that I would point out to people regarding cremation. That fire is connected to judgment. It is judgment upon person to go into the fire. It's not a good thing to be burned up. And so I usually suggest that as we see in the Scriptures, everyone was buried. Everyone in the Old Testament Israel and what we see even in the New Testament, the followers of the nation of Israel and Christians were buried. John the Baptist, remember, they came and gathered his body and he was buried. Christians are buried. Stephen's body was collected and he was buried. Not cremated. Cremation, burning up in fire, is fire is always seen as a bad thing. Now, with that said, there's not a hard and fast rule. I know of some good Christians, even members of this church, who have been cremated upon their death. Not before. So, we're not saying that there's any kind of a hard and fast rule. But, again... Fire is almost always used in terms of punishment and of judgment. So, I personally 
recommend burial. And I like awake so that you can actually see that people die. A very vivid, visible reminder that people die. And then comes the judgment. Just for your information. Let's look a little further at this verse now. Verse 42. He says that they will cast them into the furnace of fire. And he says that in that place there will be weeping. Here's the next thing he speaks of. Weeping. When the Scripture speaks of there being weeping, and as he will say, gnashing of teeth, he mentions this on several occasions. What do you think he's talking about when he says that there will be weeping? Well, weeping indicates remorse, sadness. And so there will be an eternity of remorse for sins that people have committed. An eternity of weeping and remorse over missed opportunities and shunning the Gospel as it was preached. Now, we do believe in a sovereign God and we do believe that He draws men to Himself. But still, the lost will weep through all eternity that they were not in the Kingdom of God. And it is because of their sin that they are where they are. Contrast that with what is so popular that people say in our day. You know, people like to joke, yeah, you know, I'm going to go to hell with all my buddies. And we're going to be there in hell and we're going to have a good time and party it up. No, you're not! There will be weeping, lament, remorse, It is not going to be a good time. Not only will there be punishment and fire and torment, there will be weeping and remorse over sin. And then the third thing he says here, weeping and gnashing of teeth. This has a number of things that go with it. Gnashing of teeth has to do with pain. You're gnashing your teeth from the pain, but it also has to do with furious rage. Believe it or not. Furious rage. Why would that be? Because when people are in hell, when this life comes to an end, there is no more common grace. There are a lot of people out there who hate God, but they are restrained from displaying their utter hatred towards God by what we call common grace that God gives to men to keep them from sinning to the fullest extent of their capabilities, of their total depravity. If there weren't common grace, there would be no keeping of any kind of civility or law. But here, the common grace is gone. And so their full anger and hatred towards God comes forth and they gnash their teeth at God. 
They hate God. And there will be an eternity of hatred towards God. This is what our Lord speaks of. These men who are here in fire, in weeping, in gnashing of teeth, have no hope of escape for all eternity. And that's what they will be involved in. Torment, bitter anger, and utter despair, and even remorse for all eternity. How can people say that the Bible doesn't teach that there's a hell? How can preachers preach that there is no hell? In fact, I don't even think they do preach. They just don't even mention it most of the time. So how can they ignore it? Why do they ignore this clear teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, I began this series by saying that not too many years ago in this nation, people had a healthy fear of God. Wasn't that long ago that even our government had a healthy fear of God. Businesses were closed on Sundays. People and children didn't do the things that they do today in such alarming ways. Kids killing kids. When I was growing up, I wasn't saved. But I still didn't want to do these things that kids do today because I just had a general healthy fear of God. No wonder it's gone! Because according to so many today, there is no judgment of God. God's a God of love. We don't want to mention judgment. We don't want to mention hell. We don't want to mention the wrath of God. Why do people even get saved? Saved from what? The wrath of God. But if you don't preach the wrath of God, why would they care to be saved? Why why would they want to be saved? They don't even know what being saved is. This is what we're up against. This is what we face. People who say, oh, don't worry. There's no place like hell. There's no hell. Why be saved? You're saved from hell. You're saved from the wrath of God. And they don't preach it. They don't teach it. They refuse to do so. But our Lord Jesus Christ clearly, simply, pointedly says that there will be fire Weeping, gnashing of teeth, torment throughout eternity. Now, here's the question. Why would He teach that? 
You know, if these guys today who don't think they should teach it or don't want or refuse to teach it or don't teach it are so smart, why did Jesus tell that private, intimate, little gathering with the disciples in the house that there will be fiery furnace, weeping and gnashing of teeth, judgment upon those who follow Satan. Why would he do that? Well, the reason he would tell his disciples that and the reason that he would tell us that, but his disciples first, was because very soon, very soon, these guys would be out preaching the gospel. These guys, the disciples, would be out preaching to the multitudes and to the peoples all around the known world that they must be, what? Saved. And they must be saved from the wrath of God to come. And there's only one way to be saved through the risen Jesus Christ. They had to know what to tell men. They had to know what to preach to men and what they were to tell them and what they were to preach to them is that there is a judgment day coming and you must be ready. And the way to be ready is through the salvation of Jesus Christ. That's why He would tell the disciples. Why do you think He would tell us? For the same reason. Do you want your kids to go to this place called hell? Do you want your children to be in a fiery furnace? Do you want your loved ones, your children, your mother, your father, your brother, your sister, your wife, your husband to wake up in hell being tormented with no hope of escape? with weeping throughout eternity? Is that what you want? I hope not. So, with that knowledge in your head, you go and you tell them that they must be saved. They must be born again. You plead with them! You bring them the truth. You bring them the Word of God. You show them the contrast between heaven and hell and that the only way to heaven is through salvation by Jesus Christ. These so-called preachers, they're absurd for refusing to preach on hell. It is what Jesus taught and is what we must use to warn men to flee to Christ. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. Moments from eternity. You need Jesus. And so we look at verse 43. He says in verse 42 that they will be cast into the furnace of fire. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then, in contrast, the righteous 
will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Then, this is the contrast, the righteous will shine forth in the kingdom of God. His people, rather than wrath, rather than that fiery furnace, will experience eternal bliss in glory with God. Now, I have a whole section coming up about this. Thus, the title of the series, The Beauty of Wrath. But I cannot resist saying right here as you look at this text that this is the beauty of wrath. Because in the contrast between their judgment and your glory, we see the beauty of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God to have plucked us out of the fire and by His mercy save us. And in light of judgment, we shine brightly in glory. And how much will you appreciate God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit on that day when you do not go to hell? Oh, you will thank Him. Not till then will we fully know how much we truly owe. But we will know it then. And we will shine brightly. The redeemed will shine gloriously in glory. As those who at the end harvest time are gathered together, as the text said, into His barn. The new heaven and the new earth. What a great time that will be for the people of God. Now let me say in closing this morning, I know that this is not Easy. For those of you visiting, I don't always preach on the wrath of God. I know that this is not necessarily happy stuff. But you know what? Could be. It should be. Because in contrast to hell, we will shine brightly with Jesus in glory. Make sure you are wheat. Make sure that you will be gathered into His barn and not gathered up and burned in the wrath of God. Be sure that in the day of harvest we will rejoice with Him in glory shining brightly. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.